find a seat. You should have the paperwork we gave out last week, and if you didn't bring that back with you or you weren't here, the guys are passing those out. So does everyone have a copy of the paperwork that we'll be continuing? And if you'll look at page 10, we already covered page 10, but I just want to point something out there to get us started, and then we'll move on. Just a couple of announcements. Uh, This afternoon at 5 o'clock is our next baptism. You're all invited and encouraged to attend in order to encourage those who are being baptized. 5 o'clock, and we have a celebration dinner as part of that, and it's always a very encouraging time for all. This Saturday, 10 o'clock, at our home, is the next Newcomer's Brunch. Kim and I would love to have you at our brunch. If you've never been to one of those, then please register for that today. We need to know how many are coming for uh, food purposes. Well, I've asked you to turn to page 10 of our materials in this series called God's Design for Sexuality, as you see in the upper right-hand corner of the notes and also on the, on the screen, God's Design for Sexuality. And last week, in the first third of page 10, we saw what Denny Burke accurately wrote about how sex is to be used in God's design. And he says there, you see that just before the bold Roman numeral 2, just before that we have this quote from Denny Burke. He says, the only sex desire that glorifies God is that desire that is ordered to the covenant of marriage. When sexual desire, sexual attraction fixes on any kind of non marital erotic activity it falls short of the glory of God and is by definition sinful and this principle applies to the experience of both opposite sex and same sex desire so I wanted to remind us of that because I think it accurately summarizes what the Bible teaches about both God's design but how that design then can become skewed, distorted, as it does because of fallenness, because of sin. And it does so in a lot of ways, and heterosexual sexuality uh, goes askew, and as does homosexual uh, sexual expression. So both of those, any of those that are non-marital erotic activity, uh, then that, uh, that violates God's, God's design. We will talk now over the next few weeks, starting next week, about some of the more current manifestations of sexual dysfunction, and there are a lot of them and things that have arisen even only in our lifetimes as being major issues in our culture. But for now, just when we say here non-marital, someone might say, but what about two homosexuals who are married? But we have already seen what the covenant of marriage is, and that's between a man and a woman a male and a female. So when we talk about marital, we're talking about a union between a male and a female. But we'll talk about more of that as we move forward. So if, uh, if you will turn to page 13, we'll pick up on page 13, where we left off. And with regard to what time this class starts... So what, I think what happens is sometimes in the first hour, if the first hour goes three minutes over, then there's an assumption he owes me three minutes. 
So first hour, uh, we finished at 10.50. We tried to finish at 10.45. But no, you forever lost that five minutes, okay, when we, when we do that. So we still start at 11.15 in, in here. Thank you for your cooperation. So I've been telling you throughout this series that the, that the title of the series was chosen purposefully, God's Design for Sexuality. And over these first weeks, I've been trying to create a framework for us to think about this using that title, using the three key words in that title, God's Design and Sexuality. And so in the opening lesson, and if you've missed any of these, we have those, the audio at our website. We also have the notes there. But in the opening session, we tried to show the necessity of God, the necessity of beginning with God and making what the fancy term is the transcendental argument for the necessity of God in a number of realms. And apart from God, you can't pursue, for example, logic. You can't explain existence. You can't explain the universality of some morals and and so on. So God is necessary, and when you think about every issue, including this issue of sexuality, you need to start with God. And when you're talking to someone else and you're trying to help them with whatever the issue may be, including this one, you want to begin by saying, this is how I'm going to set forth my case, and here is why, and we start with with God. And having started with God now, because there is this personal God who exists outside the universe but has made all that we see, with intentionality there is design. There is God and there is design. And people know this. We saw in weeks past that Scripture teaches that all people, by virtue of being creatures made in the image of God, know that there is this God even as we actively seek to deny Him. And as a result of that, people assume that there's design in the world, even people who deny God. And you know that when people use terms like wrong. Hey, that's just wrong. Well, what does wrong assume? Wrong assumes a standard against which it can be evaluated, namely right. So where did that right come from? Where did that idea of right come from? So people assume design when they say things are wrong. People assume design when they say things are abnormal. That assumes a standard of normality or a normalcy. People assume design when they say someone has a disorder. That assumes that there is order against which to compare it. And so we do this all the time, and I want you, us, as people who believe the Bible and want to have other people come to believe the Bible and come to Christ, to then develop this kind of a mindset, this kind of framework as we think about all matters ourselves, but then also as we communicate them to to others. We start with God. That then moves us toward purpose, design for whatever the issue is. And you can show people that they already assume such in the way they talk about wrong and abnormal and disordered. And then as it's applied to this particular issue of sexuality. And we've seen that God says that He has designed sexuality for three things, protection, procreation, and pleasure. So procreation, it's obvious that God has designed sexual activity in order for uh, children to be fruitful and multiply, as he told Adam, Adam and Eve. But then also for protection. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 we saw. Paul says that you have, uh, you have two options. You either 
remain single and non-sexually active, or you marry. Those are your two options. Because the only outlet for sexual activity is, is marriage, as Denny Burke rightly, rightly summarized. And so it's a protection against going outside of marriage and pursuing and fulfilling your sexual desires in a way that God has not authorized. Marriage protects against that. And then within marriage, it's also for pleasure. And I pointed out a couple of weeks ago that your Bible has a book that people are afraid to read and preach called the Song of Solomon because it is quite straightforward about, uh, about sexual activity and the pleasure that God has designed within it. Now with all of that, down at the bottom of page 13, born that way and made that way. So we left off at the top of page 14 last week, but I just want to remind you that we were seeking to answer the question, can someone be born that way? And putting aside for the moment what blank you fill in for that, whatever you were describing, can someone be born in a way that results in them sinning in a particular way? And if so, then what does that mean practically for responsibility, individual and personal responsibility for sin? So bottom of page 13, as sexual sinners, are we born that way? And I say yes and no. Yes, if by that we mean we are all born with a sin nature and that, and that sin nature manifests itself in different ways. Some have a tendency toward anger or dishonesty or violence. Others have a tendency toward a particular sexual desire. But just as angry as the angry or lying or violent person is responsible for his actions, so too the person who struggles with sexual sin. And so there's the no piece. Yes and no. Yes, if by that we mean we're all born with a sin nature and that shows up in different ways. Then we're born that way. If by being born that way, what we mean is because I'm born that way, therefore I'm not responsible, the answer is no. We're born that way and still responsible. Why? Because of what we saw last week. There's that uh, page 13, going back to page 12, there's that long quote that I read, that I read very fast. Somebody told me I sounded like an auctioneer when I was reading that. <laughs> or one of those disclaimers at the end of an advertisement, you know. But I was reading it quickly, there was a lot there, if you weren't here, I, but it's from R.C. Sproul, and I think he gives a good explanation of what the Bible teaches about us acquiring our sin nature from the moment of conception from our father Adam, who represented us perfectly in the garden. So therefore, we are born that way. We are born with a sin nature. Now the question is, how is it that my sin nature is going to show up? How is it that I am going to, to sin? Bottom of page 13, consider the struggle that most males have with lust. It's only because of our sin nature that we look at women as objects and talk about them in locker rooms or other so-called guy talk settings in sexual terms. These bodies, top of page 14 that we misuse because of sin are also bodies that are broken because of sin. That is, they don't work as originally designed. The Bible says that one of the consequences of sin entering God's good world is that our physical bodies are subject to sickness and decay and death. 
The creation itself was subjected to frustration and bondage to decay. And so in bold there, I say it should not surprise us that some guys and gals are born with bodies that are broken, spiritually born. So your body, the material part, for example, of the way you think, that would be your gray matter. And it would be, and it's possible for your gray matter to be miswired, to be messed up. Because the material world, the physical world, has the effects of the fall, the entrance of sin into, into God's world. And that includes our physical bodies, our material bodies. So we can come into the world with something wrong. And that can include something wrong with the, with the physical wiring. Now the Bible teaches that the way we think is more than our gray matter, but it's not less than. God made it, and it's involved in what the Bible calls the mind. And the mind has both a non-material and a material aspect. The material aspect is your brain, your gray matter. That can have something wrong with it. And we know that the spiritual aspect of the individual has something wrong with it because we're all come born as sinners. So you put the two together, and you put the two together, and you have the mess that we see in the lives of, of people. Fallenness shows up both in spiritual, non-material ways, and in material ways, and we are a combination of both. We are material beings and immaterial beings. So now, let's say somebody comes into the world, there's something, you know, their wiring is, makes them, uh, gives them a tendency in a particular direction. But then they come to Christ. And now they are, they are saved. Which aspect of their being is made, is made whole at that point? At the point they come to Christ. Well, the truth is, neither one is made completely whole. Even spiritually, at the time you come to Christ, you're still going to have the vestiges of the sin nature, right? That's why you still struggle with sin. That's why I still struggle with sin. So you still have that. And in terms of any natural, physical consequences, those don't all get healed the moment you... You come to Christ. So we're still, after we come to Christ, we are still now going to have to deal with, we are still going to have to struggle with our sin nature and the ways that sin nature shows up. So it should not surprise us that some guys and gals are born with bodies that are sexually broken, such that their desires are not natural. Their bodies do not seem to fit those desires. Why do men engage in sexual desire for what God forbids? Because we're born that way. That is, we are born with a sin nature and with bodies that are broken because of that sin. Now that's where we left off. And as I say, I'm trying to set the framework then for us to think about how are we to position ourselves and think about biblically where people are in the way they struggle with sin and the way we struggle with sin of whatever type in the sexual arena. And over the next few weeks, we will turn our attention then to those specific matters, applying these truths to it. Roman numeral three on page 14, reorientation, God's work to restore his world. So the previous pages have Roman numerals one and two, where orientation and disorientation, 
Orientation is how God made his world to be. Disorientation is how God's world became because of the fall, because of sin. Reorientation is what God is is doing about it. So as we set up this framework, I want us to see how we address sin in general before we look at particular sins uh, in themselves. So let's look at in general what God does is doing to reorient and restore his world. God is actively calling people out of the world and to himself through the proclamation of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. He will ultimately restore the entire creation, but is now restoring individuals through these means. First, salvation. The term salvation is the most widely used term in our Christian vocabulary and in the Bible itself to express God's rescue of us from sin and death with all its benefits and blessings. The noun salvation and the verb save and their cognates occur more than 150 times in the New Testament. Most commonly we speak of salvation as something that is past such as in expressions like, I was saved, or we ask someone, are you saved? But in the New Testament, salvation is spoken of as not only a past experience, but also a present and future one. So let me read for you uh, Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, because this passage in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, Titus 2, 11 through 13, has all three aspects, past, present, and future. Here's what it says. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So just stop there. Would that be the past, present, or future? That's the past. Has appeared. Past tense. So Christ has, has come because of the grace of God to do what's necessary for our salvation. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Past, present, future, that's the present, right? It teaches us now to say no and to say yes to righteousness. And then it goes on in verse 13. We do this while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the future aspect of our rescue, our deliverance, our salvation. It's the return of the Lord himself when we will be free from the very presence of sin. And you see that in a number of passages in your your Bible, this past, present, and future aspects of what we call salvation. At the bottom of page 14, you have a number of those. You see the past aspect. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. So notice he has in the past, he has saved us. Titus chapter 3, Paul says to Titus, he saved us, past tense, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So there's that. I'm saved. I have been saved. Past tense, when I came to Christ. But then there's the present. The Bible speaks of our salvation in the present tense, as if it's ongoing. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
but to those who, now notice this, are being saved. So it's not those who have been saved, that's true, but they are also, as a result, present tense being saved. It is the power of God. We'll see how in a bit. And then there's the future aspect. Since we now have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, all that's past tense, shall we be saved through His life, future? So understand, first of all, this term for salvation, which means rescue, deliverance, from fallenness, from sin, and all of its consequences, that it has this past, present, future aspect to it. Bottom of page 14, we use the term salvation as an umbrella term under which are subsumed a number of other terms that are considered subsets or aspects of salvation. So salvation encompasses all the various saving benefits we have in Christ, past, present, future. Now, as I read that, if that sounds to you like, you know, I've read your stuff, Brown, And that actually sounds much more eloquent than you. Well, that's because of the footnote. It's from Dr. Combs, okay? So I just want want to give credit where credit is due. Dr. Combs sometimes actually watches. He lives down in Virginia now. But sometimes he checks up on us. So, hey, Dr. Combs, and I'm giving you credit for, uh, for the stuff I stole from you here. Top of page 15. Some of these aspects of salvation are past. We have been justified. Some aspects are present. We are being sanctified. Some are future. We will be glorified. Now notice those terms. He's got justified. He's got sanctified. He's got glorified there. Past, present, and and future. And so I remind you of another passage in your New Testament that many of you are familiar with, but it's Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8 says this with regard to these past, present, And future aspects. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Those he predestined, let me stop there, past, present, future. Predestined. That would be as far past as you can get. That would be eternity past. Those he predestined, he also called past, correct? But instead of eternity past, this is time past. In time, But in the past, relative to your life, my life, in the past, he called you. And those he called, he also, it says, justified. Past, at the time that we were called to salvation, when we heard the gospel and we responded to it, we were justified. We'll see what justified means in a bit. So, so far, you've got three terms. You've got predestined, you've got called, you've got justified, and all of them happened in the past. One in eternity past, two of them in time past. At the same time, when you heard the gospel and responded to it, you were called with the call of the gospel, and then as a result of responding positively, you were justified. But then it goes on to say, and those he justified, he also glorified. And the tricky part there is that, in it, that it is both in English and in Greek, that last word glorified is in the past tense. But you look at what glorified means 
in your New Testament, and it's actually something future. It's always something future. You're going to have, I'm going to have in the future, a, what the Bible calls a glorified body. You're going to have a perfect body. So I'm just surveying the room here. Nah, we're not there yet, okay? No perfect bodies out there. No perfect bodies standing up here for sure. But yet it talks about it in the, in the past tense. So that's a particular use of the past tense that sometimes happens in your New Testament where something that actually occurs in the future, because it's guaranteed, it's spoken of as if it's already done. What a beautiful thing, by the way. So here you've got all four of these written in the past tense. Three of them actually are things that happened in the past. One of them will not happen until the future, but because it's so certain, it can be written of as if it's already done. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, the also piece, those and also, in that verse are very important. Because as you go through each of those four, and you go from the first to the second to the third and the fourth, the people that at the beginning were predestined, every one of those people gets brought along through all four of those things into glorified. So it's written to say all of those, those he did this with also had this. And those he did that with also had this. And those he did, all three of those, are also going to be, all of them, glorified. Thanks be to God, I'm going to make it. I'm going to be glorified. And God has guaranteed it, and he's so guaranteed it that he can speak of it as in the past tense. What a great thing. So, in your life, like my life, you know, you think, okay, there's what Jesus did for me. He died on the cross. There's the time I heard the gospel and I responded to it. And there's these things that he did for me at that time. But then there's the present and the slog that I'm in and the mess that I am. And I really wonder, am I going to make it? And that is one of the most beautiful verses in the entire word of God. And those four things, because of the way they are written, are called by theologians the golden chain of the gospel. It's an unbroken, it, you can't break it. Every person he predestined, he called. Every person he called, he justified. And every person he justified will be inevitably glorified. So there are these past and present and future aspects. Top of page 15 again. Some of these aspects of salvation are experiential. Some are non-experiential. Experiential, sometimes the term experimental is used, as applied to salvation, refers to an act of God within us. It affects our experience. An experiential act is one in which the believer is changed in his or her immaterial spirit or soul. Regeneration, or being born again, being given spiritual life, that's what those terms mean, is experiential. Our immaterial being receives spiritual life. We are no longer dead spiritually. 
non-experiential as applied to salvation refers to an act of God with respect to us. Not within us, but with respect to us. Non-experiential acts of salvation do not change us internally in our soul, but they're just as important. They are more judicial or legal or positional. An example of that is justification. So remember those he predestined and called and justified. So this justification idea is important. I'll talk about it. We'll talk about it in a bit. Justification is I'm declared righteous. It's strictly a legal declaration. I don't feel it. It's not something that happens within me, but it's something that happens with respect to me. Theologian John Murray suggests that we might, be, we might better grasp the difference between the experiential act of regeneration, being born again, and the non-experiential act of justification with this illustration. The distinction is like that of the distinction between the act of a surgeon and the act of a judge. The surgeon, when he removes an inward cancer, does something in us. That's not what a judge does. He gives us a verdict regarding our judicial status. If we are innocent, he declares us accordingly. And so you have God at work in you, changing you. When you came to Christ, that gave you spiritual life that you previously did not have, so that's a change within you, within me. But at the same time, God did some things with respect to us that are not internal to us. And one of those, one of the really important ones is this justification idea. And that's why middle of page 15, we've got several paragraphs on, on that. Now we'll get to those in a second. But with regard to you know, God at work uh, in us, one passage that I found helpful with that is Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. It is God who works in you. So this is obviously experiential. God is at work in you, in the present. Those who he started this inward work on of being born again, regenerated, given spiritual life, when we came to Christ, now in an ongoing way, verse 13, Philippians 2, he is at work in you. God is actively at work in you to do something. And here's what it says. To will and to act according to his good purpose. God's at work in you, in me, if we belong to him, in this experiential way, causing us to want, causing us to desire, to will. And because we want, will, desire, we in turn act in accordance with God's purpose. So when you do good stuff, it's because God's at work in you. And when you do good things, guess who gets the glory then? The one who's at work in you. God is at work in you. And the verse just before that, that's verse 13, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 says this. As you have always obeyed, con continue to obey. Work out your salvation, it says, with fear and trembling. Because it is God who is at work within you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What's it saying? It's saying that this salvation, this rescue, this deliverance that we have, 
is, is something that is internal. God has made a change in us. And it now needs to express itself externally. It needs to show up in our lives. Because remember, God's at work in you. And so remember that and desire that and want that and ask God for that. And cooperate with God in that is what Paul is saying, Philippians chapter 2. So now this issue of justification, this extremely important non-experiential positional, judicial declaration that God makes. Middle of page 15. The word justify is a forensic or legal term with the meaning acquit. It's the normal word to use when the accused is declared not guilty. It means to declare righteous and not to make righteous. It's the opposite of condemn. To condemn does not mean to make wicked, but to declare guilty. Similarly, to justify means to declare just. To be justified means to be acquitted by God from all charges that could be brought against a person because of his sins. So here's a definition from Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology. It is the instantaneous legal act of God by which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven with Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. One aspect of our justification then includes that we have forgiveness of sins. Look at number four, bottom of page 15. The second aspect of our justification is God imputing the perfect righteousness of Christ to us. God imputes, that is, He regards or counts the righteousness of Christ as belonging to us. He credits it to our account. Romans 5.19 So when you came to Christ and He called you, those He predestined, He called, you heard the gospel, you responded, He justified you, and that means that your sins were forgiven, but it also means that the righteous life of Christ was counted, imputed to you, so that God now looks at you through that lens. That's the beauty of justification. And remember, everybody who's justified will be inevitably glorified. So there's justified what happened in the past, there's glorified what will happen in the future, and in between, that's where we are right now. And the term for that is, top of page 16, sanctified. So you got justified, you got glorified, in between you got sanctified. The basic meaning of the term sanctify is to set apart, to make holy. In sanctification, the believer is set apart from sin and set apart to God. In justification, God declares us righteous. Sanctification, this is now God making us righteous. So in most systems of religion, people think of the work of God in us strictly as Him making us righteous. He makes an inter- a change within us. And that change within us now, we cooperate with God to see if we're going to make it to heaven or not. That's most systems of religion. Most believe that God makes you righteous, gives you the ability to be righteous, makes this internal change in you. Now let's see what you do with that to determine if when you get to the pearly gates, you get in. 
This idea of being declared righteous is nowhere to be found. In Roman Catholicism, justification is to be made righteous, not declared righteous. There is no such thing. In fact, they they make fun of it. They literally use this term. It's a legal fiction. That's the term they use. It's a fiction. That God, in this legal, judicial way, does this for you. Well, the problem with that is the Bible says precisely that. That God does that. So in Roman Catholicism, but not just, that's just the largest and most well-known representative. In all forms of non-biblical, grace of God, gospel religion. You have some form of made righteous, and then you're going to see if what you did with what you were made turns out to be good enough. In other words, you'll find out if you're going to heaven when you get to the pearly gates. No one can know for sure right now in that kind of system. But then what do they do with Romans chapter 8 and verse 30? That the predestined and the called and the justified and the glorified are all the same people. What do you do with that? What do you do when Jesus says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life, and shall not in the future come into condemnation, but is, present tense, past, from death to life. Notice, Jesus is saying there's this connection, unbroken connection. Those who in the present believe in me and him who sent me have in the present something called eternal life, which in my midweek class, master plan, I think it was this past week, I said, how long is eternal? (laughs) That would be forever. So if you possess something in the present, that is eternal, then in the future can it ever be removed? And if it is ever removed, then it wasn't what? It was never eternal to begin with. But it is what most man-made religions believe. It is what my Pentecostal church believed as I was growing up. And it made me miserable as a teenager and scared that I was going to die and go to, go to hell. So there are these three phases, page 16, of sanctification. Past, present, and future. Past or initial sanctification, I have been sanctified. The believer is definitively and instantaneously set apart from the dominion of sin. We are no longer a slave to sin. And so that means that sin does not have power over you like it had before you came to Christ. It had complete power over you. It no longer is your master. It no longer has dominion. So we are saved from the power of sin. I don't have to sin, but I still do. This side of heaven. And then there's the present or progressive aspect. So I've got that. The power has been removed. But then the believer is progressively being set apart from the power and practice of of sin. Throughout the, this life, the believer is progressively becoming holy while sin is being extirpated. 
It's God's will that you should be sanctified, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you will obey its evil desires. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So that's the ongoing aspect, and you are involved in that right now, and I'm involved in that right now. And the idea should be that from last year to this year, I have been more set apart to God than I was the year before. That's the progressive part. And last year more than the prior year. I should be maturing, I should be growing in Christ. The person who says, I've come to Christ, but flatlines for the rest of their life. You know, there's a term for flatline, right? (laughs) And in the spiritual realm, that's true too. Look, you don't come to Christ and then become like Christ overnight. You don't become like Christ completely until glorification. But in between, you are progressively, gradually becoming like Christ. And the person who says, I know him, but has not been changed by him, is fooling themselves, according to to Scripture. There is this progressive, ongoing, I am being sanctified. Now, I don't know you all here, and so, you know, I can't speak for everybody here, and I'm not anybody's ultimate judge, of course. But take heart. The fact that you're here, (laughs) and you want to learn about God's truth, that's a good sign. God says that there are these things that will accompany His work in people's lives, His progressive sanctification. And if those show up in your life, praise God every time they do, because this is God at work in you. And then there's future or entire sanctification. This is what we all look forward to when we are completely glorified, sinless. The believer is completely and entirely set apart from the very possibility of sin, no longer even able to sin, made perfectly holy either at death or when the Lord Lord returns. So, we deviate from God's design due to our sin friends in a myriad of ways including sexually and even within now the term sexually there are lots of ways that our deviation from God's design shows up in that area we are born with at conception a sin nature and we are influenced by factors external to us things that were modeled before us, things in our environment. And so we are a product, every one of us, of both nature and environment, internally and externally. And all of that shapes the way I sin. Hear this, all of us are sinners, but we sin in different ways. Now what I'm trying to do here is set this up for us to apply it to what's going on in our world. All of us are sinners, And yet all of us sin in different ways. Is all sin equal then? Don't answer, just think about it. Is all sin equal? All sinners are equally, have have an equal sin nature. We all acquired our sin nature the same way everybody else did. 
So I don't have more sin nature than you do. You don't have more sin nature than I do. We all got our sin nature from our old man. His name's Adam. And it's passed down to us. We all got our sin nature the same way. So we all have the same sin nature. However, I can learn, you can learn to sin in less or more heinous ways. That sin nature now can be molded in particular ways by those that are around us and what the culture is telling us. If you get a young person who's being told by their culture and by those around them lies, they're going to be shaped by those lies. Somebody who grows up in a different environment, they weren't told those lies. Maybe they were told different ones. They're going to be shaped by their set of lies. All of us are shaped by people and influences and the environment around us. We're all the same in terms of our nature. We're different in terms of our nurture. And we're seeing a new kind of nurture happening today. And we need to understand that. We need to know how to then biblically see it, speak to it, act upon it as citizens, as people who have children in school and all of the kinds of practical things. I'm done because I'm a minute over and you guys think I still owe you five minutes. So, What's the, what's the solution? Hey, the, the solution to whatever sexual sin somebody has going on is conversion. You know, sometimes people say, do you believe in conversion therapy? I believe in gospel conversion. And when people are converted by the gospel... They are given new desires. Those desires now have to live themselves out. They have to play themselves out in the person's life in sanctification. Sanctification is an ongoing thing. Sanctification is, is a struggle. It's a struggle for you. It's a struggle for me. It's a struggle for that person that struggles with whatever sexual issue that they brought into their relationship with Christ. You brought your baggage, they bring their baggage, we bring our baggage. But what we are going to preach here, what we're going to teach here, what we're going to counsel here, is that every person, whatever their baggage, they bring that baggage to the foot of the cross of Jesus. And Jesus begins his work of change in you at the moment you do that. And it's a progressive thing. And so I don't expect someone with deviant sexual behavior to change overnight because I didn't change overnight. And actually nobody in Scripture changed completely overnight, including the Apostle Paul. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the very things I do. He said of himself in Romans chapter 7. So we have laid, I've tried to lay groundwork for you a framework for how we are to think about this moment and where we are in our culture as we think about sexual issues, both for ourselves, for our children, for our culture at large, and then how we react to it. Starting next week, I want to start to deal with those issues within this framework. Let's ask God to help us this week, okay? Father, we thank you that we can have this time to think about these matters. I thank you for these brothers and sisters and friends who care about this. I thank you that you've worked in their lives to cause them to want to know. 
And Lord, thank you for not leaving us to grope in the darkness, but giving us your word, which is a lamp to our feet, a light unto our path. And so help us to be willing to look at it, to apply it, to think hard on it, and how it is relevant to the things that we are facing today. Facing individually, facing as families, facing as churches, facing as a society. But Lord, you have given answers to everything. Your word is sufficient. So thank you for what we've been able to learn. We ask your help as we seek to learn more going forward. Go with us this week as we serve you and represent you in the places that you've assigned to us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, before you leave, we have some setup stuff. Keith, what do we have to do?